0: News Power
1: Hour Well it's a warm welcome to you. It is the 24th of January Monday and uh, well, we've got an interesting week ahead of us, but a particularly interesting show for you tonight. If there were to be a vote amongst uh, South Africans for the most influential person on attacking corruption, I don't know who'd win it, but certainly one of the top five would be Paul O'Sullivan. He is one of a kind Irishman who came to South Africa decades ago, dedicated himself to fighting the bad guys, and has got a huge following, we know, in the biz news community. Whenever Paul says something, people listen. And uh, they are in awe of his courage. He's about to launch a tell-all book, which will be coming out in the next little while. So the second half of tonight's program is featuring an interview with Paul O'Sullivan on the Zondo Commission. And he's got some really good insights into it. He just keeps on fighting, takes on the bad guys, and uh, certainly has never stood back. Coming up ahead, though, is the performance of the RAND for the year to date, okay, we're only three weeks in, but it has been extraordinary and Justin Roe Roberts, you had a chat today with the uh, the head honcho of treasury one andre ceer uh, so i don't think he's the head honcho i think he's the he's the analyst and the guy who does all the work there
2: Alec, as you know, when it comes to the Rand, you get the good. The bad and the ugly, usually myself and you are talking about the ugly. The RAND is the second best performing currency relative to the dollar so far in 2022. It's picked up almost 9%. Andre Saliers, I call him a, treasure, a currency expert. He dives into the factors for the RAND's outperformance. There's consensus estimates that the Reserve Bank is going to hike rates, which is a tailwind for the RAND. And then commodities, which were coming off at the latter end of 2021, have held up strong, and that's been another tailwind that's been pushing the rand into the 15 rand level. How
1: much is the reserve bank likely to hike or increase interest rates by?
2: The consensus estimate is 25 basis points this Thursday. However, over a two-year period, the analysts are pricing in a 200 basis point move. We're going to look up to repo rates of around 6%. So that's
1: uh, 2% in kind of everyday language, uh, which means our bonds are going to be more expensive. But on the other hand, savers are going to get a better deal. So it's, it's not always a bad thing when rates go up.
2: Exactly. But homeowners, car owners, they need to be aware, 2% increase when you compound that, Alec, it does become a lot of money.
1: It does indeed. BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, that's the cue for Nadia Swart, my other colleague who's on, uh, in our virtual studio today. Nadia, you've got the news headlines for us, I hope.
3: I do. The ANC's deepening divisions and factionalism remain the biggest threat to the party and the country's democratic gains. This was a warning shot by the party's leaders, who cautioned about counter-revolutionary threats within the governing party. The ANC held a two-day lekotla at the weekend. Given an outline of the lekotla's recommendations, the president of the ANC, Cyril Ramaphosa, said the decay and deprivation of the party remained a concern. In his closing remarks at the Lekhotla, Ramaphosa said, the threat to our democratic gains is also as a result of an era of loss of moral and ethical principles within the Congress movement. We need to show determination in addressing the toxic legacy of state capture, resulting in weakened security institutions, misdirected and hallowed out. And the ANC has called for the extension of the 350 rand COVID-19 grant introduced in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. President Ramaphosa said that this grant has had a significant positive impact on the lives of the poor and government must examine the feasibility and affordability of extending it. The social relief grant was first instituted in May 2020 to mitigate the effects of the pandemic and is currently due to be stopped in March 2022. It was meant to be a short-term measure and was stopped in October 2020 after running for six months. Ramaphosa, however, decided to reinstate it following widespread riots and looting in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng in July last year. And nine months into his tenure as the DA's leader in the Western Cape, Albert Fritz has asked his party bosses to allow him to step aside to deal with a sexual assault scandal. Fritz, who served as Western Cape Community Safety MEC, was suspended following serious allegations of sexual assault that were levelled against him by young employees. Premier Alan Windy announced Fritz's suspension late on Sunday evening without divulging the reasons for the decision. Now it's back to Justin Roe-Roberts for the market report.
2: The JSE All Share Index was sharply low at 73300 In the price action, the only JSC heavyweight up for today is British American Tobacco. On the downside, Kumba Iron Ore, Aspen Pharmaceuticals, Sabania Stillwater and Northern Platinum all off by more than 5%, a bloodbath on the local bars today. In the currency markets, the rand was largely flat against all the major currencies to 15 rand, 25 cents to the dollar, 20 rand, 58 cents to the pound, and 17 rand, 25 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,838 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 29,500 rand. Brent crude is flat at $88 a barrel and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 500,000 rand. Not so long ago, Bitcoin had a million rand handled to it. In the financial news, South African regulators have approved a request to waive a requirement for the Magistra investments to make a full, full buyout offer to tongod Hewlett shareholders, another step forward for the struggling sugar producer as it presses ahead with a 4 billion rand rights issue. The waiver from the Takeover Regulation Panel, part of the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition, means Magister will not need to make an offer to the group completely. South African laws require that such an offer be made once a shareholding crosses the 35% threshold. And Sabanya-Stillwater has canned a $1 billion deal to acquire two Brazilian mines, marking a blow in its efforts to diversify its income streams by building a portfolio of metals critical to environmentally friendly electric vehicles. Led by CEO and renowned dealmaker Neil Froneman, Sabania Stillwater said in a statement on Monday that his decision followed the assessment of the geotechnical event at Santa Rita, one of the lo- world's largest open nickel mines.
1: This daily market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that
0: changes as your life changes. Today is Monday, January 24th, and this Your FT News Briefing. Google faces another challenge in Europe, and Sony is trying to shoulder its way into the electric vehicle market. Plus, one of Unilever's most high profile investors ridiculed the consumer goods company for trying to appear socially responsible.
4: He said that any company that feels it has to define the purpose of Hellman's mayonnaise uh, has lost the plot.
0: That's the FT's Harriet Agnew. She's got the latest chapter in this corporate drama. I'm Mark Filippino, and here's the news you need. Today, Germany's biggest publishers and advertisers are filing a complaint with the EU about Google's plan to remove third party cookies from its Chrome browser. This move would block publishers and others from analyzing user preferences while they browse. It would be a huge blow to how the industry makes money. Industry associations representing large players like Axel Springer say that Google's move would break EU law. Google has said that other platforms and browsers have already stopped supporting third-party cookies. Google says it's the only one to do this openly and in consultation with stakeholders. This latest challenge to Google comes as new rules on big tech are about to roll out in the EU, and officials are already worried that Google may be abusing its dominant position. The drama at Unilever continues to unfold. This weekend, the FT learned that hedge fund Trian Partners has built up a stake in the consumer goods company. Unilever owns hundreds of global brands, including Dove soap and Ben & Jerry's ice cream. Trian is led by the fearsome activist investor Nelson Peltz. He's known for buying a huge stake in Unilever's rival, Procter & Gamble, and pushing changes at that company. His stake in Unilever comes at a critical moment. The company's in crisis. Investors are divided over the company's direction. They're furious after finding out about a failed acquisition attempt. And one influential investor publicly mocked the company's ESG branding. His name is Terry Smith.
4: Who's one of the 13th biggest uh, shareholders in Unilever and who's a very outspoken fund manager, basically used his annual investor letter to hone in on the company
0: That's our asset management correspondent, Harriet Agnew. She's been following the drama.
4: His main point was that Unilever had lost the plot, he said, by focusing on sustainability. He criticized management because he said that they prized and burnishing its sustainable credentials at the expense of running the business.
0: Okay, so Terry Smith clearly taken a jab at Unilever's efforts to portray itself as a socially responsible company. Uh, Harriet, what does Terry Smith think Unilever's plot should be?
4: So, someone like Terry Smith thinks that, that Unilever should focus on on trying to improve profitability at the um, at the existing business rather than going um, after massive deals. And I think that's something that other investors agree with. Um, there are also those who think that maybe Unilever is too wedded to being a, a massive corporate giant. They think that it should sell its food business, perhaps, and other other businesses that are that are sort of ex growth, and just perhaps temper its ambitions and um, shake up the portfolio a bit.
0: Okay, so is Unilever at fault here, or does Terry Smith just have his own personal interests in mind?
4: Um, look, Unilever has underperformed its um, its peers, so I think there are big questions around its um, financial performance. I think all of this is going to add to pressure on the chief executive, Alan Jobe. And really, for the company, I think it marks the biggest crisis since it um, fought off a hostile approach um, by Kraft Heinz five years ago.
0: So, Harriet... How has Unilever CEO Alan Jope responded to all this? And by all this, I'm not just talking about Terry Smith's comments. I'm also talking about uh, Unilever's failed bid to buy the consumer health unit of GlaxoSmithKline.
4: He's responded by saying he wants to do some deals in um, consumer health. So even if they they don't get this um, GSK division, which looks like that that deal is dead anyway, Um, he said that they want to grow in in health, in beauty, and in hygiene. Um, He's promised this new organizational structure and a sort of major new strategic initiative, which will be announced in the coming weeks. So I think a lot is riding upon that and whether investors will continue to give him the benefit of the doubt.
0: Now, this could change uh, now that Nelson Peltz and Tryon partners are on the scene. But Harriet, before I let you go, can we please go back to mayonnaise for a second? And uh, Terry Smith's attack on Jope referring to Hellman's mayonnaise as having a purpose. Does... You know, Smith, have a point there.
4: I think it taps into a wider debate around ESG and about whether running a business in a sustainable way does indeed drive superior financial performance. I think not all investors agree that Unilever is underperforming because it's focusing on ESG too much. You know, lots of people will say that their problems relate to being in um, low growth categories in mature markets. I think what I enjoyed seeing and what resonated with a lot of readers as well was just someone sort of calling out the whole ESG movement and kind of calling, calling its bluff, Um because ESG, I mean, one, it covers a sort of multitude of areas and, and environment versus social versus governance are three very different things. Of course, it's a force for good, but there's also a lot of bull in this area. And it's a great marketing tool for both companies and for investors um, raising funds. And so I think that really resonated with people that, um, that Terry was sort of calling that out.
0: Harriet Agnew is the FT's asset management correspondent. Thanks, Harriet. Thank you. Sony is jumping on the electric vehicle bandwagon. Earlier this month, the company rolled out a prototype electric SUV, and it announced the launch of a new company to explore entry into the EV market. But the FT's Asia business editor, Leo Lewis, says Sony doesn't necessarily want to make cars.
5: Sony's real interest here is in becoming the kind of component backbone to the EV car market. And what I think Sony is doing here, and what a lot of the analysts we've spoken to think is going on here, is that Sony has realised that the best way of demonstrating the validity of its products, which are electronics, entertainment type electronics, software platforms, and so on, uh, that will work in a car, which is of course a very different environment for electronics than your pocket or your bag or anything. You know, these are electronics in cars are of, of a very different kind of breed, really, than just straightforward consumer electronics. They have to withstand temperatures and they have to be proven to very high safety standards, and so on and so on. Sony needs to prove that it can make those things for the EV market. And the best way of doing that, in Sony's judgment, is to produce a car and demonstrate very clearly that their components are, you know, top of the range and work brilliantly uh, in an EV.
0: And Sony could have a little fun mixing soundtracks from its movies into car electronics for an entertaining driver experience.
5: If you are missing the sound, I suppose, of a of a throaty combustion engine when you put your foot down, uh, I think the idea is that they they will tie a similar noise. And I said, well, what kind of thing? They said, well, you know, if you wanted sounds from particular movies that you loved and you wanted Spider-Man, you know, his web uh, being cast every time you press the accelerator... Or you wanted Thor's hammer coming down every time you press the brake. Presumably, that's something that you might uh, you might be able to install. So Sony as a company is obviously looking to pack as much, I think, sort of entertaining and innovative ideas into their car in the hope that car manufacturers will look at this as, as the future and decide, yeah, look, Sony is a legitimate player in this tens of billions of dollars global auto market, which is a company we want to partner with.
0: Leo Lewis is the FT's Asia Business Editor. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
2: I'm Joshua Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is Treasury Wine's currency expert Andre Salias. Andre, from the data I'm reading, the RAND is the second best performing currency in the world relative to the dollar so far in 2022. 7 to 8% stronger than we finished in 2021. What are the main driving factors behind this?
6: Main driving factors behind it, Justin, as we go back to our previous discussion two weeks ago, Um, then the Federal Reserve came out with the news that they will taper further, they will increase interest rates faster, inflation was above 7%. Uh, And I mentioned at that stage that I think why the dollar reacted strange to that and actually rather weakened than strengthened, uh, and the opposite then for the RAND, RAND strengthening, dollar weakening, uh, was that it's sort of more or less the same speech that we hear every time. Uh, And I think the market, it's it's discounted. Number one, that interest rates will increase. Uh, And I think the market gets a little disappointed uh, with the fact that it's not actually happening. You know, it's more of the same speech all the time. I think what the market wants now is action. Uh, They want to actually see an interest rate increase. Until such time as that happens, I think this is the sort of behavior that we can expect of markets. We also at that point said, you know, I said that the RAND could trade down to the 1530 levels, 1530 being quite a pivotal point. And if it breaks that, it could move down quite a bit uh, lower and very quickly, which is exactly what it did. Uh, So I'm not too surprised with it.
2: Traditionally, Andre, when U.S. equities slide or correct, as they have somewhat this year, The dollar is seen as that safe haven currency and it strengthens relative to the currencies in the rest of the world, especially emerging markets. Rand aside, how are the other emerging market currencies or currencies in general performing relative to the dollar this year?
6: Well, uh, in general, the emerging market currencies are doing better. Uh, And I think if we look at the emerging market space over the last couple of months, then we had seen that uh, money was flowing from the emerging markets back into the U.S. dollar. uh, And with, now I'm going to, this sounds like the Federal Reserve, with the same rhetoric speech from them, uh, that seems to be going into reverse. And all the emerging markets had benefited uh, from inflows, both into the capital and into the equity markets over the last uh, two, three weeks. Uh, So we're not on our own. We've done better than them, Uh, but we are a proxy currency. Uh, So, you know, uh, we always overreact to the one side or the other, Uh, but all the emerging market spaces did better in this period.
2: Commodities have rallied relatively strongly over the past few months or so. Is this one of the driving factors why the rand might be outperforming other emerging market currencies, as you've just mentioned?
6: That could be because we are, at the end of the day, still a commodity currency, uh, same as Australia. Uh, and if commodities does better, then the rand will always do better. And now, once again, if we go back to what I've said before, you know, a lot of people started speaking about a slump in the commodity space, where I uh, differed from them and said I think it will not happen. It will not be in such a hell of a, hell of a boom phase. Uh, But the demand will still be there as economies keep on growing after the pandemic. Uh, And hence, once again, I'm not surprised that the commodities are actually doing a little bit better.
2: Andre, I have to bring it up again. Inflation, interest rate cycles, it's all got to do with uh, the uh, currency movements. The number one concern at the moment in markets is inflation. It's red hot in the US and South Africa, as you've just said, But as a result of most central banks, I'm talking the Fed, the Saab, following similar interest rate hike patterns, although they haven't yet, do you expect interest rate hikes whatsoever to play as much role in currency movements as the year progresses?
6: I think it will take a little bit uh, of a back foot. I don't think it will be taking such... A dramatic have such a dramatic impact as before, uh, because it's discounted in the market. Uh, so it will have an impact, but less of an impact, uh, and and definitely not dramatically.
2: When we talk about p- currencies, or when people generally in con- engage in conversation about currencies, Turkey has to be mentioned. What's happening with the lira so far in 2022?
6: The same volatility as we've seen before, uh, but we've we've got the same erratic president in charge of them, Uh, you know, and he seems to be running the government, he seems to be running the central bank, he seems to be running everything in that country. Uh, So we always joke and look at our democracy and the attacks on our democracy in South Africa, I wonder whether we can still speak as Turkey as a democracy, uh, because the autocrat that they have as a president uh, seem to be doing exactly what he wants to do uh, when he wants to do it. So the volatility will remain in in as as far as Turkey is concerned. They have to bring their inflation under control, uh, and the way they act on the interest rate side is definitely not going to aid them at all. Uh, they also not aiding themselves in any way uh, with the way they carry on with their international relations uh, throughout the world.
2: Andre, this is a topic that we've never chatted about and I'm excited to hear your opinion on it. What's your opinion on the adoption of Bitcoin as a form of global currency? I do understand that there's many red, red flags, the main one being regulation at this point, but if things had to change... Do you think there's possibly any merit in it? And secondly, do you think it would be plausible?
6: Yeah, this is a, an interesting one, and I'm just going to give you, as I say, my view. Nothing will happen before that becomes within a regulated territory by central banks, uh, both central banks and tax authorities, etc. If it cannot come under the umbrella of those authorities and those regulators There's not a snowball's chance in hell that it can become uh, a commonly used currency for payment and receiving of uh, goods and payment of goods. And I think that's quite a long way off. So, yes, it's possible that it can happen, but the regulation needs to happen first. And that's not six months away. That's not two years away. That's a couple of years away. Uh, So I don't think it's an immediate threat. Uh, But once that happens, I think it will also take away the extreme volatility that you see in uh, Bitcoin uh, as it gets more widely used. And if it comes within the regulators, I think a lot of hot money that currently flows into that space uh, will disappear and find a way somewhere else, uh, which will dramatically affect the value of of the Bitcoin. Uh, And I think that would actually lead to quite a decline in the price of Bitcoin, if that were to happen. Uh, Where a lot of people think the more widely it gets used, the higher the price would go. I'm completely of a different opinion. Hot money will fly and uh, it will actually decline in value.
2: Let's talk technicals. Your technicals, your charts have had a crystal ball in recent weeks. But what are the charts saying about the Rand dollar price action in the coming weeks? And before you answer that question, Andre, could you just break down what technical analysis actually is and why it's so important to you as an analyst?
6: Okay, so let's start with what is technical analysis? Technical analysis is looking at graphs of the performance of the currency uh, in the past. Uh, According to that, and there's various methods uh, and various things that you then get, Uh, there's moving averages, there's 25-day moving averages, 200-day moving averages. Uh, All that uh, gets done on graphs, gets looked at. There's certain patterns that forms, uh, and there's certain behavior of the currencies that gets repeated. Uh, So if it forms, for instance, a head of shoulder, uh, what you call a head and shoulders, Uh, Hidden shoulders would mean that it it moved in in, in, in a left-hand side, in a left-hand shoulder, uh, within a band for a period of time. Then it moved upwards, uh, so that that you would have that band that it moved in would be a shoulder. The upward move would be the head that gets formed, and then it would tend to come back and form a right-hand shoulder. So you get all sorts of patterns. You get inverse head and shoulders and You get candlesticks, you get all sorts of things. But that's what technical analysis is. It's a look at what happened in the past and trying to determine according to that what the behavior of the currency would be. And it forms certain technical levels, and that's the technical levels that we refer to, where it creates resistance points and support levels of the currency at certain levels. Uh, so that's in brief what technical analysis is.
1: The third Biz News Conference at the magnificent Champagne Sports Resort in the Drakensberg will be held from the first to the fourth of March. It's lining up to be the best so far. We've got a strong lineup of speakers. A single delegate cost is seven thousand seven hundred and fifty. For couples, it's twelve thousand nine hundred and fifty. Book your seat by going onto the Business Investment Conference button on the right-hand side of the Business.com homepage. See you there. Hola, Sullivan. Good to have you in the studio. Our brand-new studio here in Branson. Are you impressed? Yeah, no, it's very nice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> We're growing up here at and yeah. uh, You've been in, with us the journey all the way through. Also, you've been on the journey with the Zondo Commission. And now we have part one of the reports from the Zondo Commission. As an overview, your thoughts?
7: Well, so far so good. You know, the way it's coming out, you're seeing SAA, so it vindicates my actions against Duda Miani, although I don't get mentioned in the report, I think. Did you actually make a submission to Oh, yeah. We made a very detailed submission, um, and then we applied to cross-examine some of the witnesses. And at one stage they were talking about you know, that I would go and give evidence. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, they announced that the criminal justice system is no longer part of their mandate. So they won't be reporting on the criminal justice system. And that, for me, was a problem because had they have recognised the fact that state capture was only possible after the capture of the criminal justice system, they would have realised that the capture of the criminal justice system was one of the enabling factors. And, I mean, if you had good cops and good prosecutors in situ, state capture couldn't have happened. The people would have been arrested and charged. So that's a real big problem for me. We've got letters on file from the Sonder Commission denying my request, my application, formal application, uh, to cross-examine certain witnesses. I wanted to cross-examine a number of witnesses.
1: Who in particular?
7: Uh, I wanted to cross-examine uh, Duda Mayani. I wanted to cross-examine... Well, you
1: would have come just as short as everybody else there because yeah, you I, certainly didn't well, want yeah, to Well,
7: yeah, except share. I would have wiped the floor with her. Eh? How? Well, I would have made allegations to her and she would have had to, to, to use her expression, quote the Fifth Amendment, you know, uh, the right to remain silent. Uh, I wanted to... There were a number of people within the NPA and the police who got up there and lied through their teeth, or produced affidavits which they submitted, in terms of which they lied through their teeth. And those people belong in prison, and some of them are still in their jobs within the NPA and the
1: police. That's interesting. So there were certain people who committed perjury at the Zondo Commission where you have to speak under oath. Yeah. Can they go to jail for that?
7: Well, they can go to jail for what they... What they spoke about, because they lied through that, apart from the perjury they committed at the Sondo Commission. And, I mean, the problem is the Sondo Commission has come to an end now, and if they start prosecuting all the people that lied, that's going to be
1: another 15 or 20 years in court. Uh, (laughs) You've got a good uh, approach to that, Paul. In other words, don't try and get them on a 1,000 counts. Find uh, uh, the ones that will stick. Just
7: unpack that for us. Okay, it goes back to a case I dealt with many, many years ago, it was a guy that convicted of uh, f- fraud, a very big-scale fraud in those days, going back to the early 90s, and then another case I dealt with after that. But this particular case of fraud, I was in the police then. We charged a guy with... It took me three months to write the charge sheet, 1,898 charges, 112 charges short of 2,000. It took me three months to write the charge sheet, and the charge sheet comprised three lever arch files and that's just the charge sheet in other words what he's done wrong yeah he's a very bad guy he stole from pensioners you know he stole a lot of money his name is andre Bauer. and he had all these retirement villages which i actually rescued i used my own cash to rescue uh, those villages and bring you know bring the people to what they paid for that they got what they paid for and what happened at the time was he was arrested and charged I think he was arrested in April of 1994, and he was kept behind bars for maybe three or four months, and then he was released on bail, and then his trial continued. And his trial only ended in 1997, so it was like three, three, and, three and a half years. So it was towards the end of ninety seven, and then he, he was sentenced to about 300-and-something years in prison because of all these charges, but the effect of all those charges, they have what they call the summing up rules, and they add them all together, and some are consecutive, some are concurrent, blah, blah, blah. And the net effect was he got 15 years in prison. And I was at the Rand Club with the prosecutor and the regional court magistrate who sentenced him. Obviously, that wasn't possible before he went on trial or during the trial. And we were sitting there at the Rand Club, and we had a nice meal. And then I think I was just getting stuck into my sticky toffee pudding with custard when the regional magistrate came out with something like, of course you realised if you'd have charged him with only 10 charges, he would have still got 15 years. And that made me think. And after that, as a policeman, I used to just go for the low-hanging fruit. I'd go for the charges that were crisp and clean and could easily be proven in court. And I would abandon the other charges. Because what's the point in having a three-year trial if you can have a three-week trial and the guy will still get 10 years or 15 years? Whereas if you have a three-year trial, he's still going to get 10 years or 15 years. So my approach then was to say, forget all the other stuff, pick five charges. And the next case that I was involved in where we actually did just that was a bank manager by the name of Vito Osanti. He was the regional bank manager at Kempton Park of NBS Bank. And he assisted a lawyer and a building contractor to swipe about, I think it was about 375 million rand. And when I started drafting the charge sheet, I thought, hang on a minute. This this trial can go on forever. They selected, eventually the NPA selected five charges involving an amount of 50 million rand you know, big checks for 20 and 10 and whatnot. And those five charges, he copped a plea on them. He realised that his game was over and he copped a plea. Now, there's another thing that's wrong with our criminal justice system. I contracted between 2006 and 2009 with the British government. I was working for the uh, Ministry of Justice in the UK. And we were looking at uh, reorganising the criminal legal aid system in the UK and it ultimately came to the fact that there was, they have what they call sentencing rules in the UK. So if you're convicted of this type of category of an offence, there's a standard sentence you should get. Now, they should apply that here in South Africa because the way it works in the UK is if you plead guilty before the trial commences, you automatically get one third off the sentence that you would get if you pleaded not guilty and were convicted.
1: So stop wasting everybody's time. Yes. You, you are If you're guilty of something, yes. we'll incentivize yes. you to do that.
7: You, so then if you are pleading not guilty, of course you have the right to plead not guilty, sure. but if you plead not guilty and the evidence against you, you are convicted. Remember, most of those sort of trials are jury system, so it's 12 good men and women, you know, and... Uh, that's the way it works. And if you are convicted, then the, the, the decision on sentencing has got nothing to do with the jury. And for most part, it's got nothing to do with the judge. He has a guideline that he has to follow. Now, if we had that sort of thing going on here, instead of getting 15 years, some of these people could cop a plea and go for 10 years or five years even. You know, I look at Duda Miani, for example. Apart from being a despicable woman... Uh, without a shred of honesty in her body, if she was to plead guilty to, for example, contempt of court, uh, which is the offence she committed at the Zondo Commission, she named witness X, and she did that on purpose to intimidate the person, so she could also be charged there with intimidating that person or defeating the ends of justice. But if she was to cop a plea and go to jail for five years, I'm pretty sure the country would be happy whether she got five years or 10 years or 15 years, the important thing is they have to go to prison. And if they think they can escape jail, then that's another problem. And then there needs to be reparation. And Zondo talks about reparation in the report, but the problem is the legislation uh, for reparation in South Africa also needs to be overhauled.
1: There's lots of work to be done there, but the big story internationally on the Zondo Commission right now is Bain. Yes. The Financial Times of London, who've run a l- number of stories on it, yes. including an editorial comment yes. where they are calling on Bain's customers or clients to around the them. world yeah. to ditch them. Yeah. In fact, and that's I, I, unprecedented. In
7: fact, I spoke to Peter about it, and you know Peter's quite uh, vocal.
1: Peter, uh, Peter Hain,
7: and uh, he's given them a good clobbering in the UK as well. I think he's going to be asking for colleagues of his in the Houses of Parliament, because as you know, he's in the House of Lords he's going to be asking for colleagues to bring a motion to ban them from working for any government department um, in the UK. They're still
1: working for government in South Africa, though, which is astonishing Well, they are. They need to be fired
7: everywhere. And it's very easy for them to say they made a mistake. But actually, they facilitated the hollowing out of of SARS, And they made a mistake because they were paid to make a mistake. Now, that, in my opinion, amounts to corruption. If you produce a report... That says what the person paying for the report wants you to say. Then you're involved in corruption,
1: and you're leveraging your international brand yeah, to give it credibility. KPMG it. did well. KPMG
7: did the same, and unfortunately, with KPMG, you know their report has been completely discredited, and the result of that is that some of what the work they did, you end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater um, because not hundred percent of everything in their report was. Fallacious. Some of it actually had merit. Um, I don't go into that right now, but some of the allegations they made had merit and it was backed up with documentary evidence. Now, the but prob- the whole
1: report has been thrown out of because it they Be- put because things in that yes, they shouldn't
7: have. They were, uh, what is it? He who pays the piper calls the tune. And yeah. they were playing to the person that was calling the tune. And uh, that's very unfortunate. And of course, KPMG are not alone.
1: But you've taken on big corporations, big organizations, very powerful organizations before, and and as has uh, Peter Haynes. Still still do. What what would you do if you were advising the South African government, or even SARS, on Bain? Because Bain has come back and said, well, in fact, they've been less than contrite, and suggesting that uh, the profits that were earned by their South African subsidiary were earned for good work. Well, you know,
7: you have to look at what I call the management consultants. You know, there's a consultant gravy train around the world. Everybody needs a consultant to tell them what to do next. Um, and they've lost the plot. A lot of, Not only governments, but big corporations as well, are famous for hiring consultants to tell them what to do. Uh, if you turn the clock back, we go back to South African Airways. There was a chap running South African Airways by the name of Coleman Andrews. Now, Coleman Andrews' wife was working for a management consultant company in America. Never yes. Serious? Yes, yes. I'm trying to remember their name now.
1: It wasn't um, Bain. No, it wasn't Bain. <laughs> Otherwise you would have known in the um, top of your tongue.
7: Was it McKinsey? The, the, the company in question changed its name. Subsequently, you know, they became something management mm. consultant. No,
1: the, the point being it was a management, management which consultant.
7: Management consultant who happened to be... One of their biggest clients was an aviation company, well known aviation company, by the name of Boeing. And at the time, when Coleman Andrews was running the show, South African Airways was busy with a tender for the replacement of its short-haul fleet. So it was either going to be three, A319s and 320s, or it was going to be 737-800s. Uh, of course, we were, Yes, you got the contract. We got, we got the
1: 737-800s. So, so a corruption in South Africa is nothing new. It's been going on for a long time, You, Coleman well, Andrews. But can the Zondo Commission...
7: Well, I'm not saying Coleman was corrupt. I'm just saying, you know, there's a thin Paul, grey line corrupt. between a conflict of interests and corruption. And, of course, if you ask Coleman today whether he was corrupt, of course he'll deny it. So we, I don't want to defame the guy. At the end of the day, he didn't do the right thing for South
1: African Airways. Well, it was a slippery slope since then. But well, my point here is... Zondo Commission, yeah. now that it's, it's come out with its findings yeah. and th- there's, there's a lot of information to be sifted through, yeah. is this going to have an impact on corruption in South Africa or indeed the kind of impact that we are hoping?
7: Well, obviously, ultimately it has to have. But I'm, I remain of the firm opinion that every person, especially a, a person that was in a position... Of authority, uh, whether he was a minister, he or she, whether they were minister, uh, whether they were CEO or CFO or chief operating officer of a state-owned entity. I mean, the CEO of SABC is infamous for what he did, you know. They, a lot of these people, in order to pull off the stunts they pulled off, they had to eviscerate their organisations, clear out the management that were good and ethical, and because otherwise they wouldn't get away with what they were doing, so you end up with all these hollowed-out state-owned entities, and the people that are gone have left a vacuum, and now these entities are supposed to be running on, you know, normal business lines. Meanwhile, all their expertise is gone. SAA was a prime example. Transnet, SARS, Traza, SARS. You know, a lot of these organised DENAL, A lot of these organisations were hollowed out for purposes of corruption. But the most important one was the criminal justice system because in hollowing out the criminal justice system, they did two things. First of all, they ensured that the cops wouldn't catch the robbers because the cops were friends of the robbers. And secondly, anybody that stood on the the hill and pointed at the robbers became targets. And as you know, I mean, I was... I, my offices were raided multiple times. I, had, I was arrested several times. Um, Sarah Jane Trent, uh, the, the director of Forensics for Justice, was kidnapped and hauled away for three days. I was, I was detained on one of the occasions I was detained. I was tortured. Um, and then eventually I had to go through seven trials. And if you add all the charges together on the seven trials, there were 65 charges. Now, uh, of course, i have been acquitted or, or the cases were thrown out of court. But the, f- the fact is that was three years of my life, actually more. It was four years of my life uh, down the drain. They kept my passport so I couldn't go overseas to visit my family. There was a lot of issues. And the instantaneous justice that they tried to serve on me has to be contrasted with the fact that I opened my first criminal docket against Miami. In March 2015, that's almost seven years ago. In January 2016, I opened a docket against her, with prima facie evidence in it, I should add. In March 2016, I made a supplementary statement and added more primary fake, prima facie evidence. And in July 2016, I made another one. And then in 2017, we opened a docket against Mayeni and Sumer for corruption. So... All those dockets have been sitting there all those years with prima facie evidence in. And to give you an idea of the scale of things, it took four and a half years to build the train. Some of those dockets have been sitting there for six and a half years.
1: The timeline is interesting here because this is during the period when Jacob Zuma was the president of South Africa, where the Zuptas were at their zenith of power, before the elective conference where... Sir Ramaphosa, in December 2017, when he was elected. So they're all there. You can almost understand that during a time when the president of the country is being potentially implicated in the dockets that you've opened, yeah. that there would be no investigation. Well, uh, we but why the, not in the five years subsequent well, to that? What's the, going we, on we, now? Well, you
7: know, um, I wrote a letter a couple of weeks ago to Shamila um and she, she responded saying that Don't worry, we're onto it. We're dealing with it, you know. Um, What I've asked for is an insurance that they will go for the the low-hanging fruit. And it seems to be that there's an attitude or a policy in the NPA that everybody must be charged with everything they did.
1: So going back to how we started this conversation. and I'm
7: saying that's wrong. Because if you're going to do that, the interests of justice won't be served. You're going to end up with half a dozen people with long-drawn-out trials tying up the criminal justice system for the next 20 years, and that is not in the interest of justice. I would be more than happy to see Dudu Maiani get slapped in jail for five years for defeating the ends of... Forget the corruption charges. That's that's going to be a long trial to produce a... We've got a videotape of that woman sitting there naming Mr X. That's a criminal offence. Lock it up. Short and sweet. And the be- The sad thing. And I made the comment at the time. The sad thing is, when she did that, there were policemen sitting in the room who should have they should arrested have arrested
1: her? her immediately. Did they know that? Uh, uh, would they have known? Excuse that it me.
7: Did a- th- these policemen know what they're doing? If the the, the the Criminal Procedures Act makes it clear that a police officer can arrest any person that commits any offence in front of them. So the police don't have to investigate. If they're sitting there and they see her commit the offence, they can arrest her immediately. And I'm left wondering, why didn't they? Those cops should be hauled up and said, explain why you didn't arrest the woman. And I can tell you the answer. The answer is very simple. The criminal justice system was captured starting back in 2012, which was after Zuma came to power, a process endured to capture the whole of the criminal justice system. At one stage you had Jiba, the acting national director of public prosecutions, then you had this clown, uh, corrupt clown at that Sean the Sheep, who was illegally appointed in the first place. Michael Holly appointed him. He never even met with Sumer, when Sumer signed his appointment letter. He never even met met him.
1: And that was the head of the NPA. N- N- yeah, Paul. Just uh, just to uh, perhaps put that into perspective, we've had five years of a different government.
7: Yeah. Well, we haven't had we five have, years, have
1: we? Almost. Well, we've had four years. How far are we still down the rabbit hole? If we were at 100% captured during Zuma's uh, regime, where would we be sitting today?
7: I don't know. I'd say we're still 50% captured. That doesn't mean 50% of all the cops and prosecutors are captured. I'm saying if one goes back to the level that we were at, when we were 100% captured, it didn't mean that every prosecutor was corrupt. It meant that the. Control, Just trying to get a feel. Well, for I it, made yeah. the appointment to Godfrey Lebea. You know, he was appointed head of the Hawks, and I, you know, I've known Godfrey for, le- for years and years and years. And I said to him in one email about a year after he was appointed, and I said, Godfrey, the problem now is that you are in charge of the Hawks, but you're not in control of the Hawks, and the same applies to the National Prosecuting Authority. I told Shamila. I said, Shamila. You are in charge of the NPA, but you're not in control of the NPA.
1: How long will it take for her to get into control well, now that she's have. lost her right
7: hand? I used if you you know, I use the expression sleeper cells. So during the period of state capture, while these people owned the criminal justice system, they appointed unlawfully they appointed a whole host of people into different positions within the hooks within the police, within the NPA, within the secret services. So you've got all those people there. Now, how do you get rid of them? Do you go through disciplinary inquiries? Now, the problem is those people are part of the supply chain, if you like. They're part of this, this supply chain in delivering criminal justice. And how can you deliver criminal justice if you've got people pulling in the opposite direction? And that's what we have here. If I take a block of concrete that weighs 10 tons and I put it on the floor and I tie a rope to both sides of the concrete and I say, right, find out how many men you need to drag that concrete in that direction. Let's say east, you know. Right, 100 men. Good. Let's drag the concrete. Now the problem is 50 of those men run around to the other side and they pull the rope in the opposite direction that concrete's going nowhere. So you actually need now 150 on the rope to go east to counter the 50 that are trying to pull west. And that's the same thing that's going on in the criminal justice system. I'll, I'll give you a classic example. We go and open criminal dockets on a regular basis, and sometimes for clients, you know, because we, I run a, a practice of fraud consultants. So we open dockets. Now, you arrive at a police station at a front desk and maybe myself or Sarah Jane or one of my other staff, who are all extremely highly qualified people, arrive at a police station front desk with a client and a lever arch file being the docket. And the cop behind the counter says, no, you can't open the docket like that. You have to write it out by hand. How do you write a 100-page affidavit with annexes of all the evidence, where you've set out chapter and verse of how a fraud was committed. How do you write that out by hand? And that's the mentality we're dealing with. And then you go to the station commander and eventually the station commander comes and tells him, okay, go register the docket. The the mentality we have is there's currently no leadership in the police, no proper leadership which filters from the top down to station level, and there you end up with guns going missing and they don't even know when they went missing because they haven't kept proper records. So nobody knows, oh, uh, stock take is done. Oh, there's 20 guns missing. Oh, when were they stolen? Mm, I don't know. Well, when did we last do the stock take? Okay, two years ago. Right, in the docket it says they were stolen between 19, uh, uh, 2018 and 2020. Now, well, How the hell can you not account for 20 guns over a period of two years? Is there
1: any good news you can give us?
7: Yeah, I think the good news is that we, we're winning, slowly but surely. I think what needs to happen is some – I use the expression quick justice. What's missing in South Africa is quick justice. The only people that get quick justice are people like myself who go and open criminal dockets against Duda mayeni And then three weeks later, I'm in a jail cell with handcuffs behind my back, having – a corrupt general in the police prodding me in the chest, telling me you don't know how you've upset Duda Miani. That's, that's quick justice of the wrong kind. We now need quick mm-hmm. justice of the right kind. And I'm hoping in the next report that Zondo issues, and I hope somewhere somebody listens and gives him the message, that he doesn't just refer to the ex-CFO of South African Airways not having complied with Section 34.1 of the Prevention and Combating of Corrupt Activities Act. But I'm hoping he will name and shame every minister and every government senior employee who knew corruption was going on and didn't do anything about it.
1: That's going to be a long report, talking of which, you've got a book in the
7: making. Yeah, it's, it's coming out soon. It's going to be in the shops before Easter. It's going to be a cracker. No holy cows, as they say. You know, the problem we have over here, I go, if you look at our world, our world is compartmentalised and a lot of people don't get justice when they deserve it. And the reason they don't get justice when they deserve it is because you have cliques, cliques that protect each other. Um, It's very hard to find a lawyer to help you sue a lawyer. It's very hard to find a doctor that will give evidence in a... Uh, a medical malpractice case against another doctor. And the same applies in in the media. It's very hard to find media who are prepared to criticize other media, unless, of course, there's some sort of a animosity between the parties concerned. Um, for example, you see a lot of animosity at the moment, public animosity, between Daily Maverick and IOL. Iqbal survey. And, of course, you know, the fact that Iqbal has... People should have had the name Hans Christian Andersen uh, rather than Zilikaziwa uh, Wa which, by the way, isn't his real name. We know his real name. We name him and shame him in our book. He lives a very wealthy lifestyle, which is surprising because most journalists don't live a wealthy lifestyle. So when I see journalists who own 5 million rand houses and drive uh, one million rand cars, I always get suspicious. And there's a few of those in South Africa. And then you end up with uh, undercurrents because certain journalists or certain media houses have connections or shareholders or other connections, which leaves you wondering, well, hang on a minute, how can that that be right? How can you report... Uh, without fear, favour or prejudice in the public domain, if you've got shareholders who are themselves connected to the criminal underworld. And that, that seems to be rife. In, I'm not suggesting Business News has any such shareholders, but there are certain organisations out there that are connected, or if they're not connected, they have been accused of certain criminal conduct. And here they are running media houses. And I think that needs to, to come out into the open. And it does so in my book. I attack these media houses. I also attack Sanef, who stood by and watched for eight years of state capture and did nothing, allowed all these journalists and editors to get up there and bring the country to its knees by assisting state capture. And yet, when I start naming and shaming and threatening those journalists with exposure, Sanef jump out, Without speaking to me, by the way, not giving me the, not applying the Audi ultrapartum rule, which journalists are supposed to comply with, SANEF issue a media release uh, criticizing me for threatening journalists. And then they go and they appoint their own panel to do a whitewash report on the, the involvement of the media in state capture.
1: You, you don't step back for anybody, Paul. Where does I, this come from? You're now making more enemies because well, clearly... Well, I'm not making enemies. Mm, I'm just telling the truth. You, well, if you, if, you, you, if you take on media houses and accuse them of the things that you've just mentioned now, of course you're making enemies and yes. powerful enemies.
7: Well, you know, they may be... I'm just stating the truth. The problem is some of these media houses have
1: been involved. Paul, before we finish off... In the last few days, two of the star witnesses of the, on the other side of state capture, the people who were badly affected by state capture, Temba Maseko and Johan von Loughrenburg, both had invasions, home invasions, or attempted home attempted, invasions. Attempted burglaries. You know this world well. What's yeah. going on there?
7: Well, I mean, look at the rate of crime out there at the moment. So it could be just normal crime. You know, until there's some... It's very easy to say there's reds under the bed. And, of course, why would they be immune to...
1: But why would they both be hit within within a a couple of of days?
7: It could be linked. It might not be linked. And it's very easy to jump to conclusions. And I think what should happen is a proper investigation, which is very hard these days, with the police and the prosecution service working the way they are, a proper investigation to reveal who was involved you know, if one turns the clock back, the offices of the Helen Sussman Foundation mm-hmm. uh, were robbed in 2016 and all their computers stolen. The investigation never discovered who was behind it. The problem we have in South Africa today... But
1: 2016 investigators would yes. have been somewhat different to what yes, you would hope Yes, today. yes, yes.
7: I'm just wondering, the all, all the evidence is out there now. There's no more evidence to be put on the table It's there at the Sondo Commission. All that evidence has been done. The only other place that evidence can be led now is in a court of law, when these people are on trial. So what... what, Even if they got there and stole it, what are they stealing? They're stealing copies. The originals are all safely stored away. I just don't see the motive for a house burglary unless they were planning to steal something, you know, like a TV or something like that. That's not to say it wasn't linked. But... Uh, I'm a factual person, you know. Being an engineer, I'm—I I'm take a scientific approach, and I never like to say speculate, shall we say. And one can't speculate until you have some evidence, and then you're not speculating; you're talking about facts. So factually, it's very suspicious. There's no doubt about that. At the moment, that's all it is—very suspicious. <laughs>
1: Well thanks for being with us today and we look forward to being back in your company tomorrow same time same place uh, from the biz news team until then cheerio You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News